If you have a a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, the fourth book there in the New Testament. And we will finish out this chapter beginning in verse uh, 31 and going through verse 52. The events of this chapter and of chapters 8, 9, and 10 all occur within the context of a one of the main Jewish feasts, a feast called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of three key feasts on the Jewish cal- calendar, and it was marked by uh, high joy and, and excitement. It was a, a harvest feast, so it was a feast that celebrated God's provision, but also was a time for asking that God would continue to bring the rains so that the harvest could continue to come in. Uh, One uniquely enjoyable part of that festival was the building of booths, the building of of tents with natural materials that each family would sleep in throughout the seven days of this feast. Again, we said last week it was like a community camp out. And this was a, a reminder of the wilderness wanderings of God's people when they had no permanent homes but lived in tents in the desert as they were on their journey um, to the, the promised land. Uh, if you've never done this, it's kind of fun. Uh, in our school curriculum, we look at some of the Jewish feasts and we built a tent one time. My kids will tell you about fun memories of creating a tarp tent um, underneath our playset and eating some meals out there. It's not a bad practice to just have an adventure and try and see Christ even in these feasts. But regarding this time in the wilderness, the festival not only highlighted these wanderings and and the tents, but it also highlighted themes of water and of light, remembering the time that that God brought water from the rock to supply uh, water for his people, and also the pillar of fire that led them. Um, The theme of water was emphasized each day in a special ceremony. It would go like this. The, the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam. You remember the Pool of Siloam from John chapter 5? It was fed by a spring. It was living water. And so they would go to this Pool of Siloam. They would fill, the high priest would fill a, a golden pitcher with that water. And he would take it in a procession that led to the temple. Uh, D.A. Carson writes this. As the pr- procession approached the water gate, three blasts from the shofar, a trumpet connected with joyful occasions, were sounded. So you can hear that trumpet blasting three times. While the pilgrims watched, the priests processed around the altar with the water, the temple choir singing the Hallel. The Hallel is Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. So if you want to read something this afternoon, you can read Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And these were the psalms that were sung during the the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Carson goes on to describe how once the choir reached Psalm 118, everyone would cry out, the whole crowd, everyone that's gathered there, three times they would say, give thanks to the Lord. And then that water, along with the daily offering of wine, would be poured into silver bowls, and they would each then be poured out before the Lord. That's just one part of this festival. And as we think about it, we can't adequately imagine what it would have been like to go to Jerusalem for one of these feasts in Jesus' day. Can you imagine what that would be like? 
It's hard to understand how it would have felt to see all of the people filling the streets and filling the courtyards of, of the temple. You can see all the tabernacles, the, the little booths that have been set up on the outskirts of town or maybe up on the, the, the roofs of the, the flat roofs of the homes there in the city. You hear all of the singing. Surely there was a lot of good food at this feast. You can witness this, this ceremony of the drawing of water and the, the shouting and the singing that went along with it. It was this well-choreographed, joy-filled celebration. And you can imagine it was a formative moment for people. This was something that they looked forward to and shaped who they were. It's what they, they ordered their, their year around. Well, added to the normal excitement of this festival on this particular year, at least the year that, I, that we're talking about in John chapter 7, there's an added element of anticipation because everyone's talking about this guy named Jesus. This man who had been saying and doing amazing things in recent months and years, and the people are all coming to the festival for the festival, excited about the festival, but they're all, all also saying, I wonder if Jesus is going to come. Do you think Jesus will be here? Maybe we can hear him preach, or maybe he's going to do another miracle. What might this faithful crowd be thinking as they, they gathered? We saw last week that Jesus' brothers saw this feast as an opportunity for Jesus to, to regather some of his disciples. They thought he should capitalize on this moment and increase his popularity. In verses 11 to 13 of this chapter, there are questions. People are saying, is he going to show up at the feast? And some people are offering their opinions about just who Jesus was. Amidst all of the normal enthusiasm about this feast, you can hear the buzz of Jesus going, uh, the buzz about Jesus going about the city. Some people are excited and hopeful to see him and hear from him. Others are anxious to silence him and to get rid of him. Well, Jesus does arrive, but he arrives in quiet, in secret, as it were. That is, until he starts teaching in the middle of the feast in the temple. There would have been massive crowds gathered in, in the temple, and Jesus boldly stands amongst them, and he proclaims the truth about the kingdom of God. We looked at his teaching last week. He rehashes some familiar themes that we've highlighted throughout our, our study of, of John, um, teachings about uh, where he was from um, and various other things. Uh, the teaching of the first half of the chapter elicits various responses that show up here in the second half. Jesus speaks a lot in verses one through 30, but we find in the second half of the chapter that Jesus only teaches in four verses. It's in verses 33 and 34, and verses 37 and 38, and the rest of the passage is about how people are responding to Jesus and the questions that they are asking about what he is saying and doing. Well, as we consider this crowd, I wonder if, if they might remind us of the people of the world, of all the diverse individuals from various walks of life who make up the population of the earth. Now, of course, all of the people that we find in this particular passage were Jewish, but they were not the same. Uh, the passage that Joel read from Acts 2 talked about people from various areas who were Jewish people who had come for the Feast of, of Pentecost, and the same was probably true here. It's around the same time. It was probably the same, that there was this large number of different people that were gathered there. Not only that, there were people from the more rural areas of Jerusalem. There were people from Judea. There were people from the city limits. There were individuals with more or less religious zeal. There were some who had been there 
every year for their whole lives, and there were some people who this was their first time to visit. Some of them had power and status. Some of them were influential. Others were seen as common and inconsequential. And they all arrive in Jerusalem for this feast, and while they are there, they are all confronted with the person of Jesus. And so too are we, and so too is everyone in the world. Like them, all of humanity is asked to respond to the question of who Jesus is. Each of us from our various walks of life, along with our friends and our neighbors, with their various stories, as well as the people of the entire world with their perspectives and their histories, we all have to decide who is Jesus. And John, you remember, has written this book not simply to answer that question, but to say to us that that how we answer that question is the most important thing that we will ever do. It's the difference between life and death. It's the doorway into the place of satisfaction and peace and eternal rest that we long for, and it's supplied to us by God's Spirit. And we see here this, that belief in Jesus is the only way to quench the thirst of every soul. Belief in Jesus is the only way to quench the thirst of every soul. Can we be honest? This is not a new big idea, is it? (laughs) It's a restatement of so many big ideas that we've had already in this study of John. It's, It's the same message. It's the call to believe in Jesus and find life in his name. But as we continue to think about who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him and what is the nature of the life that he offers, here John 7 offers just another piece of the puzzle. Another, another morsel for us to, to chew on. And what's unique here, what he starts to introduce, maybe for the first time, is the role of God's Spirit and how the gift of God's Spirit is promised to all who will believe in him and how that indwelling of the Spirit is going to give us true life. This is similar to, this, this passage is similar to what we read in John 4, that there will be eternal water for us, that our quench, our, our, our thirst will, will never return. And yet here we see that, that that comes through the Spirit. We find again that, that the thirst of our lives, in the thirst of our lives, what we are all ultimately looking, looking for is Jesus and the salvation and the life that he can provide. Because belief in Jesus is the only way to quench the thirst of every soul. Well, look with me at John 7, and we'll begin in verse 31. If I'm honest, we probably should have gone through verse 36 last week. That would be a better breaking point, but uh, we stopped at verse 30, so we're going to pick it up in verse 31. So look there with me. Yet many of the people believed in Jesus. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these things, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Belief in Jesus is the only way to quench the thirst of every soul. Let's look at this passage under two headings. The first being the various responses to Jesus that we find here in these passages. And the second will focus on verses 37 to 39 and the promise of, of life and of the Spirit to all who believe in Christ. So first, notice responses to Jesus. Responses to Jesus. As we've noted, there are many different people from different locations and backgrounds gathered in Jerusalem, and they're all responding to Jesus in different ways. The result being division. There's division throughout the city about just who Jesus was. And in that way, Jerusalem is a microcosm of the world, isn't it? And it's division over who Jesus is. So let's consider these responses and try to see how they exist in our world and how we might respond to them, but also how they, they want to crop up even in our own hearts. I'm going to give you eight overlapping responses, okay? I'm not going to say that these are totally distinct from each other, but as I walk through it, that's how they came out to me, and we're going to go pretty fast through them, okay? Probably not as fast as I want to, but as fast as I can. Uh, the first one, the first response to Jesus that we have is we believe his signs. We believe his signs. It's there in verse 31. Uh, it's there in verse 31, but we've seen this throughout our study of John's gospel. It's, it's what we've called sign faith as opposed to word faith. It's a faith that comes to Jesus for what he can do for us, not for him. It's the attitude of the crowd in John 6, and it's at the heart of false teachings like those found in the prosperity gospel. Jesus' signs are not an end in and of themselves, but a means of pointing us to the reality of who he is. To believe in Jesus' signs and to not believe in him is like stopping to take a picture by a sign for the Grand Canyon. Maybe you can think about that sign that has a picture of the Grand Canyon on it, and it tells you how far away it is and how close you are and what direction to go. And you take a picture by that sign, but you never go to the Grand Canyon. The sign directs us to what our hearts are thirsty for, to what we really want, 
But if we never arrive at the place to which the sign is pointing, then we are missing the life that is being offered. And yet, and yet to see the sign is to be on the right road, isn't it? If you see us, we don't see signs for the Grand Canyon here in Louisville. But there are signs for the Grand Canyon near the Grand Canyon. And so they're on the road, the right road that could lead to faith. It could take their sign faith and turn it into word faith. But there, there needs to be some further steps down the road. So the first way we respond is we believe his signs. A second response that we, is seen in the religious leaders, and it's this, we seek to silence him. We seek to silence Jesus. When the chief priests and the Pharisees hear the, the seeds of faith in the crowd, their response is to try to arrest Jesus and silence him. The chief priests were largely Sadducees, who usually did not work in conjunction with Pharisees, but a common enemy will unite enemies. Uh, and these two groups saw Jesus as a threat to their authority and to their status. So they reasoned that if the people were going to follow Jesus, then they would lose their power. And so they worked together to arrest him. They sent this group of Levites that functioned sort of like temple guards that were to arrest Jesus. This is not Roman guards. These are the guards within the temple, sort of the private security force within the Jewish elite. But they are Levites. So we seek to silence Jesus. What do we mean by that? I think when Jesus threatens our comfortable places of power or the way that we've always done things, our response is to, to silence him, to quiet him. Maybe we could see this in something like a, a, a child who talks, starts to take the gospel seriously and it starts to change their life in radical ways. But their parents would prefer that things just stay the way that they are, that that our religion is something we just do on Sundays. And so they try to quiet the influence of the gospel or the influence of the church on that child. Sadly, church leaders and pastors can have the same response to this truth of Jesus. Sad to think that a church leader would try to silence Jesus. But if Jesus is taken seriously, he can threaten the status quo of a ministry or of a, of a church. And so sometimes... Pastors and preachers would choose not to preach some of the clear teachings about Jesus or some of his calls to radical discipleship in an effort to keep from rocking the boat or to hold on to some sort of power or influence. But to silence Jesus is to not believe in him. So we silence him. Third, we, we misunderstand him. We misunderstand him. Maybe you've noticed that one of the big discussions in this gospel is where is Jesus from? <laughs> there was a widely held belief that the Messiah would appear out of nowhere. And so the, the fact that everyone knew who Jesus was and knew where he was from, to them meant that he could not be the Messiah. Of course, they didn't actually know where Jesus was from. And here Jesus points out that they were also ignorant about where he was Going. This is his, his teaching there in verses um, 33 and 34 that talks about where he is going. He tells them that as they're seeking to arrest him, that he's going to go to a place where they can't find him. Now, it doesn't mean that he's running away from them so that they can't arrest him. Rather, in reading the rest of the gospel, it's clear that Jesus is referring to the fact that he is going to go back to where he came from. 
he will return to his Father in heaven. But the crowd, again, thinks in earthly terms, don't they? Not in heavenly terms. And they wonder if he's going to go talk to the Greeks and to the Jews that live among the Greeks. It's a strange conclusion and an ironic one in light of the fact that the gospel of Jesus would indeed go to all nations. But here, it reminds us that our natural earthly minds do not understand Jesus' heavenly wisdom. If all we are using is our own human rationale, we will misunderstand Christ. We will misunderstand his word. People who are unwilling to seek truth beyond what their eyes can see will never find Jesus to be living water for their souls. Only heavenly wisdom will result in true faith. So what are our responses? Well, we've seen that we could have sign faith. We could seek to silence Jesus. We might misunderstand Jesus. Fourth, we, we label him. We label him. To name something is in some way to gain control over it. If I can label you, then I can feel like I understand you. Maybe you've been given a label and you feel misunderstood in some ways because you say, well, that's not who I am. Well, the crowd seeks to identify and to name just who Jesus is. Some identify him as the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Others say that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah. And in fact, he was both. These weren't separate figures, but they were prophetic promises that Jesus fulfilled. And yet these titles were weighed down with many assumptions about just who the prophet would be and just what the Messiah would do. These people had various religious and political pictures that were tied to those labels. And so when they labeled Christ in those ways, they were assuming that they understood him, that they knew exactly what he was going to do. But he broke the mold of so many of those assumptions that were surrounding these titles. So while they were partially right about who he was, he was the prophet and he was the Messiah. In labeling him, they were not allowing him to explain who he truly was. I think so too, we and so many others label Jesus. And when we do it, we assume that we've figured him out. We know who he is. He's a teacher. He's a prophet. He was a historical figure. He was a religious figure. He was the Messiah. And yet these labels can keep us from allowing Jesus to tell us who he truly was and to offer us life through faith in him. Fifth, we question him. We question him. The questions of verses 41 and 42 are, as we've seen again and again, born out of presumption and prideful assumptions. Again, the people assume that they fully understand him. He begins to speak and they interrupt him with words like, yeah, I know. Yeah, we know who you are. We've got this figured out, Jesus. And their assumptions lead them to question who he is such that they never seek to hear and believe in him. The question here that you find is, is the Christ to come from Galilee? That's the question. The irony here that John is drawing out is that this question is about his origins, and it reveals more about what they don't know than about what they do know. They've already decided that he was born in Galilee, and he's not a descendant of David. Of David. Are either of those things true? No. He was born in Bethlehem, and he was a descendant of David. You wonder what would have happened if these individuals would have just walked up to Jesus 
and said, hey, where were you born? Any chance you're a descendant of, of David? But instead, they, they just assume that they know everything about him. Fear or pride or any number of things can keep us from asking questions about Jesus or about Christianity. And failing to ask questions can keep people in unnecessary darkness. You ever have a conversation with someone and they're questioning so many things about what someone is thinking or what they should do and, and you just say, well, why don't you just go ask them what they're thinking? Why don't you just go talk to them? I think so often people approach Jesus and they just talk behind his back all the time. They just assume that they understand who he is instead of going and asking him through the scriptures and through the church just exactly who he is. Some people think that asking questions will make Christianity fall apart, but Jesus and the gospel are strong enough to stand up underneath all of our questions. If we're willing to ask them, we may find, in fact, that we've just been thinking wrongly about them all, all along. That all of our assumptions were, in fact, dead wrong. So we question him. A sixth response is found in verses 45 and 46, and that's this. We marvel at his words. We marvel at his words. You remember that delegation of temple guards that was sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees? Uh, we saw them earlier in the passage, and then we didn't hear from them, but they return. They come back to the chief priests and to the Pharisees in verse 45. But when they come, they're missing something very important. They're missing Jesus. They were supposed to bring Jesus with them, you remember. And so the Jewish leaders are upset, and they say, hey, where's Jesus? Why have you failed to obey the orders we gave you? Now, these guys, these temple guards, remember, they, they aren't nobodies. They are Levites. They, they understood the law, the prophets, and they let the religious leaders know that they didn't arrest him. Why? Because he spoke unlike anyone they had ever heard. What a testimony. As I read it this time, it, it struck me, it reminds me of, of what Peter says at the end of John 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And maybe these guys were catching a glimpse of that and they say, no one ever spoke like this man. He's saying things in a way. He's saying truth that no one has ever said before. They couldn't go along with silencing Jesus because to do so would be to silence a teacher unlike anyone that they had ever heard. It's a beautiful response, isn't it? And it's one that could lead, I think, to genuine faith. And yet simply to admire the words of Jesus or to hang them on your walls or to post them on your profile doesn't mean that you actually believe them. There are many people who find the words of Jesus to be marvelous, at least certain words of Jesus. But Jesus is not asking to be marveled at as an amazing teacher, is he? He's telling us to worship him as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. As the Jewish leaders interact with the temple guards and with Nicodemus in verses 45 to 52, we see our seventh response. It's we dismiss him. We dismiss him. The pride of these men is deep. 
first, they, they say to these fellow Israelites that there's no way that the crowd could recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Why? Because they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They say, if we don't think he's the Messiah, then we're right. There's no way that you guys could be smarter than us. Let me just say that you should always beware of that attitude in leaders. Uh, beware of someone who says that they are the final judge of what is true and what is correct. I think leaders, pastors in particular, should be trustworthy in discerning what is truth. But a leader who says that their understanding is superior to all understandings and that if people don't see it the way they do or they see something different, then they must be wrong, that is uniquely dangerous, to say the least. The pride of the Jewish leaders is also seen in the reality that they dismissed Jesus, but they did it without ever listening to him. Do you notice that they never go? They send this, this delegation, but they are not present to hear him teach. Why? Because they'd already heard enough. They weren't going to listen anymore because they'd heard, the little that they'd heard was enough for them to make a decision about who Jesus was. Some people have heard just a little bit about Jesus, but they've already made the decision that they're not going to follow it. They know a little bit about Christianity, but they say, that's eh, enough, I'm not going to listen to it. And when Nicodemus in this passage suggests that they try to understand him a little bit before they kill him, what do they do? They turn on him. And they incorrectly, in fact, state that no prophet has ever come from Galilee. Notice they say that, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Not true. <laughs> there are a couple prophets that actually came out of Galilee, but they're so blinded by rage that they, they can't see how foolish they are being. To dismiss Jesus without listening to him, again, reveals fear or pride or something even, else, even deeper. And so we might say that to some of our thoughtful friends who reject Jesus, we might say something like what Nicodemus says here. Have you ever listened to him? You've decided that Jesus isn't the Messiah or that Christianity is not real, but have you, ever, have you ever read any of the Gospels? I mean, there's obviously a lot of people in the world now and throughout history who have found the teachings of Jesus to be truly life-changing. So wouldn't it make sense to at least listen to him? Wouldn't it make sense to at least give him a hearing before you reject him? Here's our final response then, flowing from that. The eighth response is, we honestly listen to him. We honestly listen to him. I think we see this, recommend, this reflected in the attitude of Nicodemus. You remember, Nicodemus sought Jesus out. He did it by night, but he sought Jesus out back in chapter 3, and he was still willing to listen to Jesus, and he wanted other people to listen to him. He, he probably agreed with the temple guards. He was trying to listen with heavenly ears. He was avoiding the trap of labeling Jesus, but he was trying to let Jesus say who he was and why he had come. He wanted to hear from him. He was willing to let all of his assumptions go. So what happens to a guy like that? What happens to us if we truly, humbly, 
honestly listen to Jesus, I think the hope is that we would discover that belief in Jesus is the only way to quench the thirst of our souls. And so we find in verses 37 to 39 that Jesus is living water. Jesus is living water. We saw earlier uh, in the chapter that Jesus began teaching at the temple in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, but it says in verse 37 that we have now arrived at the last day of the feast, and John calls it the great day. Uh, There's some debate over exactly which day this was. It could be the seventh day of the feast, or it could even be the eighth day. In either case, I think the key to understanding it is the symbolism of water that Jesus is tapping into. You remember at the beginning we talked about that, that golden pitcher that was taken down to the, to the pool of Siloam and, and then pulled out and taken to the altar and, and poured out? Well, the seventh day is the last day that that pitcher would be brought to the altar. And in fact, some say that on the eighth day, there was a similar ceremony where no water was brought, the purpose of it being a means of looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, to the way that he would, would, would provide water and even would provide the Holy Spirit. In either case, whatever day of the feast it is, it's this, this idea that the water is being poured out for the last time until the next time they celebrate this feast. So on this, this great day, this, this last day, Jesus is tapping into that idea, the fact that the water is going to cease. No more water will enter into the temple. And yet the people are still thirsty. I think as there, there's some that say there was some sort of a moment of silence before this final ceremonial pitcher was poured out and that it's probably in that moment of silence that Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I want you to think about a moment in your life where you've been in a crowd but everyone is silent. You ever had that experience where there's a moment of silence but there's a massive group of people that's present? The last thing that you want to do is to be the person that breaks that silence. And so now with that in mind, just sort of feel the silence in the temple court. This moment when everyone knows that the last thing that you should do is talk. I mean, think about that moment. Who, who would presume that they have the right to interrupt that ceremony? And what could, could be worth saying in that moment that couldn't wait till later? There's going to be time to talk later. Why would you interrupt that moment? And yet that is the very moment during the feast that Jesus shouts at the top of his lungs, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You notice that Jesus announces not simply that he can give us something for our souls to drink. He announces rather that he is the water that we must drink that he is the wine of life. 
that it is in drinking from him, finding forgiveness and life in him that we will find joy and satisfaction and that our thirst will be quenched. We just went through all these different responses to Jesus and into all of these complicated responses regarding just who Jesus is and what we should do in the face of his presence. Jesus steps in with a really simple question, doesn't he? What's the question he asks? Is anyone thirsty? It's one of the most common questions that, that we ask people or that is asked of you. Is anyone thirsty? It's, it's not a difficult question. It doesn't require any special training to answer. Now, when Jesus asked that question, here's the most foolish thing that you could say in that moment. No, I brought my water bottle with me. That's what I say when people ask me if I'm thirsty. No, I brought my water with me. Why? Why is that a really silly thing to say? Because that's not what Jesus is talking about. And everybody knows that that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about physical thirst. He's talking about the thirst of our hearts and of our souls. And so along with the crowd that day, we need to pause and we need to think of all the ways that lie our lives can make us thirsty and that our lives can feel like wandering in the wilderness longing for water. Remember, that's the background of this feast, wandering in the wilderness and being thirsty. We remember the Israelites, how they were thirsty in the desert, and we might feel in our own souls how, how this world and our wilderness existence in it sometimes feels like dehydration. It feels like we don't just need water. It's like we've been dried out. It's like we're dead. Because apart from Christ, we are. Water is life, and without it, we are dead. In addition to that water, you might think about living in a tent. And when you live in a tent for long enough, you start to really want to go home, don't you? <laughs> I'm not much of a camper, but the few times I have, my favorite time is when we pack up the tent and you go home, because I'm ready to go home. Homesickness, I think, is a different kind of thirst, isn't it? It's a thirst for belonging. It's a thirst for love and for acceptance. It's a thirst for a family. You think about on a Father's Day, it's a thirst for a father like the one of Luke 15 who comes running to us and welcomes us into his loving embrace, who invites us to rest in his house. The feast is coming to an end. And while the time in the tents had been fun, I imagine that everyone is looking forward to sleeping in their own home again. If this occurred on the eighth day, you can think that some people would have been there and, and they're already packed up. They're ready to head back home already. Once the festivities of this day were over, they're heading home to be with their families and to go back to their houses. And that's something that they're longing for. And since the fall of Genesis, we have all been thirsty and we've all been homesick. The Garden of Eden was a place filled with water. It was a place where four rivers flowed out, watering the four corners of the earth. It was a place of comfort and rest. It was a home in so many ways, a home with a father who walked with his children in the cool of the day. And then sin came into the world and it threw us out of that place. And more importantly, it cast us out from the presence of God because it's God alone who can satisfy our thirst and it's God alone who can rid us of all of our homesickness. 
And so Jesus announces that all the shadows of the Old Testament were pointing to him. He says there, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You can search your Old Testament. There is no direct quote, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It would seem then that Jesus is speaking of the fact that this theme of of the fact that 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 he will come and he will bring life, a, a water-like life that brings flourishing and life to us, that it is all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. It's a promise that that flows from Genesis all the way to Malachi, and he is fulfilling it. He is telling the crowd that in him and in him alone they can find satisfaction for their souls. And he's saying that to us. And it's a satisfaction, he says, not just for a moment. It's a satisfaction for time and eternity, for now and forever. Because Jesus says, as he does to the woman at the well, that if you drink this water, it'll be like a spring in your soul. Just think about that that image. It's like water flowing from within your very heart. You never have to drink again. And John explains what he was alluding to in John chapter 4 and what he's saying here now. In part, what it means, it means that, that Jesus is speaking of his spirit. He's talking about a reality that was not true then in salvation history, but was coming. And it was coming at his glorification. After his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension, after the completion of the work of salvation, this would be possible. How? Because after Jesus ascends to the Father, we find as we read on the day of Pentecost that his spirit, his very spirit is poured out on all who believe in him such that every believer in Jesus receives the gift of the Holy Spirit the gift of living water in our souls such that we are never thirsty again. The gift of God's presence in our hearts so that we are never homesick again. The gift of continual satisfaction in Jesus. This is ours. How is it ours? It's through belief. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What does it mean to drink of Jesus? It's in verse 38. Whoever believes in me. Belief in Jesus is the only way to quench the thirst of every soul. When we confess the sin of seeking to quench our thirst in so many other places and we come to Christ for life, we are saved. We say, Jesus, you alone can quench my thirst. I've tried everything else. I've tried every other fountain and nothing has satisfied me. It's just made me more thirsty. I've tried to cure my own homesickness. I've gone to every place I could imagine and I just feel more lonely and more restless and only you can make me feel at home. Maybe you need to say that for the first time today. But there's some of us probably who are God's children who just need to say words like that for the hundredth time. To confess that we have gone to other fountains 
to quench our thirst and that we want to return to Christ as the only one who can. That we've been fooled into seeking joy and rest in other places and we've neglected the spring of life that is ours through the indwelling spirit of Jesus. Who is Jesus? It's the most important question in the world. And if we will, by God's grace, through his spirit, listen to him, honestly listen to him, we will find satisfaction and salvation. Jesus will quench the thirst of our souls. Would you join me in a moment of silence? And then I will pray for us. Father, would you forgive us for going to so many other places to quench our thirst? What a foolish thing to do. Even as Jeremiah says, it's like going to a broken, dusty, dry cistern when only you can satisfy us. And so we return, Lord. Come back to you. We remind ourselves that you are a, a spring within our souls if we believe in you, that you satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts, that you give us rest and peace, cure our homesickness and all of our wilderness wanderings. Lord, would you teach us what it looks like to drink of you each day. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and pouring out your life for the forgiveness of our sins. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.